Good morning, everyone, beloved. I'm uh, Pastor Jonathan Coleman, one of the pastors here at Anderson Hills United Methodist Church. And, and so for the past couple months, we've journeyed through one of the most incredible sermons ever preached, Jesus, uh, his sermon on the mount. And it gives us very specific guidance on how we are to live our lives and how we are to practice our faith. And so last week, we started a new chapter, chapter 6, and Pastor Matt Howe and Pastor Mark Putman, they talked about hypocritical generosity and how that we're tempted to be showy with what we give rather than giving secretly with uh, a humble heart and giving out of that gratitude to God. And so today, Jesus gets very specific about prayer and the practice of prayer and fasting and the motivation behind those two topics. So let's take a look at Matthew 6, uh, 5 through 18. He says, And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. And truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then... Your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, don't keep babbling like pagans, where they think they'll be heard because of their many words. Don't be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. This then is how you should pray. We're very familiar with this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others of their sins, your Father will not forgive you of your sins. And when you fast, don't look somber like the hypocrites do for they disfigure their face to show others that they are fasting truly i tell you they have received their reward in full but when you fast put oil on your head wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you're fasting but only to your father who is unseen and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you and so one of our six habits at Anderson Hills is to spend time with God daily. Actually, it's listed first. Our primary way to experience God is through prayer. God's foundational attribute of relationship with his creation, especially we who are created in his image, is to have a dynamic daily relationship with God. And this can happen through prayer and fasting. And so Jesus begins with this statement, when you pray. He takes it for granted that people will pray. In verse 5, he says, when you pray, not if you pray. Again, in verse 6, he says, when you pray, not if you pray. He says again in verse 7, when you pray, not if you pray. And so it's understood. With our Lord Jesus, it's not whether you will pray, where you, but it's about where you'll pray, what you'll pray, and why you pray. God has a deep desire to communicate with us. And God is always nudging us, tapping us on the shoulder to pray and for that communication to take place. You know, I remember a time 
uh, when our family would gather around the dinner table. This is when our kids were much, much younger. And I would ask each kid to share a story from school, maybe about the day. And it would open the door for conversation. And it was a gift for Kim and I to hear about our kids' stories. And they would tell some of the wildest things, maybe some of the sad things. But we would share that around the table. Now my kids are in college, and it's changed. You have to pry it out of them. Even open-ended questions are received with, Hey, Benjamin, uh, t- tell me about your day. Good. It's like, uh, what are you thinking? Nothing. You know, it's just like, I want to hear, man, you know? And it seems like as they grow older, they get much, much more quieter in relationship with us. And so I tried, Emily's got this Snapchat thing, and so I'm Snapchatting, and she just loves it. So I can get 50 Snapchat messages if I respond back to her, you know? Hey, this is what we're doing, you know? And so I try to get every means in order to communicate with my family. You see, God wants to hear us, hear our praise, our joy, our pain, our concern for our lives, and and maybe our concern for others. God desires to give us guidance in his will for those things. And so Jesus gives us specific elements for prayer. And first of all, he starts out and he says, in secret. And I believe humble is in there as well. He says, when you pray, pray secretly. Don't be like the hypocrites. They love standing in the synagogues and on the street corners that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they they receive their reward. What was Jesus referring to? Well, there were religious people in his days that loved to walk on a busy corner, and they would actually put themselves on a busy corner at the right time where people were gathered and the multitudes would be passing by. Theologian James Merritt gives us insight on this. He says the Pharisees were very clever. Every afternoon, sacrifices would be offered in the temple, and at the same time, every day, a trumpet would blow and would signal that it was time to pray. Wherever you were and whatever you were doing, you were expected to stop immediately and begin to pray. You were to stand and turn toward the temple and begin to pray. Well, the Pharisees loved to make a show of their religion. They realized this was a great time to strut your stuff. It was a great way to show off your spiritualities. So when their prayers would come, the trumpet would blow, they would be standing at the busiest corner strategically in that city, and there they would pray out loud. You can kind of imagine that in your mind's eye. There's nothing wrong with public prayer. The Bible is filled with sincere public prayer. But you see the motivation behind this? People, we need to seek God together corporately. You know, I'm a pretty social dude, and some of the most deepest times of prayer is interacting with others. My friends, my family, people in the church, and and really deeply with the staff here at Anderson Hills. On Wednesday, and you can join us online, or you can come into the sanctuary. Every Wednesday at noon, we have a time of prayer, and people can go up, and as they feel led, or they have a scripture that comes to mind, or they can offer a petition, they can come, and you're invited to that. And it's a very public prayer. And I see the motivation behind it is so sincere. And it's, there's a lot of humility in it. You know, there's a story of a young lawyer who just opened up a brand new office. He was seated behind his new shiny desk, and he was eagerly awaiting his first client. And soon he heard footsteps in the hall, then a hand on the doorknob, Well, wanting to look important, he pretended to be busy. 
And as the man began to open the door, he picked up the telephone. He carried on a fake conversation. He said, I, well, I have my secretary here as soon as I can. I understand. You've got to understand I have a very heavy schedule. And then he motioned for the door, beckoning the stranger to come in. He said, I do appreciate you calling. Call back in a few days. If I can take your case, I will. And then he put the receiver back on the hook, and he looked up for what he hoped was his first client. And now may what I may what may may what I do wait a minute now may I help you I guess he said something like that, and the man said and he goes why are you here and he goes well, I'm from the phone company I came to pick up your telephone you know do you guys get that okay so anyway but Jesus says there's a lot, public prayer is kind of like that to be seen by others to be seen in that motivation where there's nobody if God hears that there's there's nobody on the end of that line. When it's showy. And you see that throughout the Bible. Come to me humbly. Rend your hearts, not your clothing. The inside motivation of pouring our lives out to God. I do a lot of public praying. As a matter of fact, like 200 people last night at this wedding I officiated. You got to stand up and do the blessing. There's a lot of pressure on pastors, isn't it, Mark? You know, and they're so tempted. I see, I see my colleagues, you know, I've seen very, very sincere prayers throughout my years as a pastor from my colleagues. But then I've seen those stained glass voice prayers. Oh, dear, omnipotent, heavenly God. You know, and you can, they're, they're maybe trying to drum up these words. But, you know, sincere, humble prayers is where we get that incredible, life-giving pouring out of God upon us. I've been guilty of both. I'll just say that right now, confession. I've learned personally, real prayer, God holding on to you, spirit answer prayer, is prayer done in secret. He says, but you go into your room, shut your door, pray with your father who's in secret, and your father who in secret, who's in secret will reward you openly. You know why the secret place is so important to God? Because you can, just, you can be just you in secret with God. Because when you're in your closet, you're not in that, uh, you're in that secret place. There's no applause. There's no clapping. Uh, there's no religious performance. There's no acclaim. No people telling you what a great prayer warrior you are. There are no awards, plaques, or trophies. Or somebody commenting on the skill of your prayer. When you're in a secret place, it's just you and God. Be yourself. Talk. God wants to be with you. Our life group met last Sunday, and we were discussing this very topic, and I did it strategically teaching because I wanted fodder for this sermon anyway. And one of the group members shared this, and I like it a lot. She goes, I'm so thankful that I know that God is completely confidential. Think about that. You can bring anything to God, completely confidential, in secret. And it says that he knows our need before we bring them, and he desires to impart his wisdom through our walk on this human journey. And in secret, we can just listen. If you ever just sat and listened, just shut your brain down, maybe put your phone aside or in a different room and just sit down and humbly listen. The world is so, so loud. And when we're in secret, we can have that incredible intimacy the one who's created us and push that pause button. You know, an interviewer once asked Mother Teresa what she said to God when she prayed. She says, nothing, I just listen. And then interviewed 
interviewer asked her, well, then what does God say when you pray? Nothing. He just listens. <laughs> That's incredible to think about. It's that intimate prayer, knowing without saying anything. So the next thing is pray sincerely. Our prayer should be sincere. And I looked up synonyms for sincerity. Honest, genuine, earnest, truthful. Someone said God does not respect arithmetic of our prayers. It's not how much we say. God does not respect the rhetoric of our prayers. It's not how eloquent we say it. God does not respect the logic of our prayers. It's not how methodical our prayer might be. God respects the sincerity of our prayers and how heartfelt they are. You know, the best example is in G when Jesus tells a parable in Luke chapter 18. Check this out. It's up on the screen. And you can kind of see. You might even want to close your eyes and just visualize this. He said, to some who were confident in their righteousness, they looked up down on everyone else. Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed. Oh, I thank God that I'm not like the other people, robbers and evildoers and adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He wouldn't even look up to heaven, but beat his breast. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves, they will be hum humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. There's a big difference in this prayer, this parable, these two people. Next time you pray, ask yourself this question, do I pray frequently or more, more fervently when I'm alone with God than when I am in public? Is my prayer life an overflow of my private praying? Am I thinking of what others are thinking about when I am praying? Am I looking for just the right phrase? Am I thinking more about people who are worshiping me rather than the one who is supposed to be worshiping? Just be sincere. I remember I was a spiritual director on a chrysalis, and this was several years ago, and this young man gave his life to Jesus Christ com completely. And he asked me, so now what do I do? And I felt like we both just needed to pray. I prayed first, and I can't even remember what I prayed. And then I said, won't you go ahead and pray? After some time, and then he began to cry. This genuine prayer came out. I'll never forget it. I'll never forget it. On his knees, he raised his hands and cried, God, I just want to be like a newborn baby in your arms. I just was blown away. And I heard this young man was just saying, God, take me, nourish me, grow me up in you so I may become mature in my faith. Wow. That's the sincerity. And I bet God answered his pray, prayer in an amazing, powerful way. Jesus says in verse 8, do not be like them for your father knows these things before you need to ask him. See, he already knows what you need. As a matter of fact, God not only knows what you need, he knows what you need before you even needed it. And when you pray, you're praying to an omnipotent God who can answer any prayer that you have. And if he knows what we need, all we have to do is ask. So ask. He says, seek and you'll find. Ask and you shall receive. And he's talking about the deep spiritual things that call us into the deep depths, depths of relationship. 
So then Jesus begins to teach about the Lord's Prayer. And so he gives us this example prayer. And like all all authentic worship in relation to what Jesus has been teaching us about, there's a right motivation in the Lord's Prayer. First and foremost, it's God-centered. It doesn't begin with our human needs and wants. It begins with honoring God. Mark Putman and I talked about this, and, and he came up with this. He says, Jesus' example of prayer begins with three thine petitions, thy petitions for God. Thy, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so God's kingdom is not just about a future hope for an end time. It's about a present reality of his kingdom coming into our lives and reigning in us as we serve him as his ambassadors. The entire Sermon on the Mount teaches us a rhythm of, a, of what discipleship looks like living in this kingdom. So when we say, thy kingdom come, that's really what we want, the deeper realms of being in that kingdom. You can't pray this prayer without committing your will and action to fulfilling the will of God in the present. And then these three thy petitions are followed by three we petitions. Daily bread, give us our daily bread. Forgive us our debts. Keep us from temptation. This entire prayer is communal as well. And when we pray this corporately, we do that together in unity as the body of Christ. Think how powerful the Lord's prayer is. You know, I read from a devotional a few days ago. It says, I cannot say our if I'm not in fellowship with other Christians. I cannot say Father if I do not demonstrate his relationship in my family life. I cannot say in heaven if I'm so occupied with earth and never think about heaven. I cannot say hallowed be your name if I don't do that by living and exalting his name. I can't say your kingdom come if I'm doing all, my, all in my power to hasten or hesitate its coming. I can't say your will be done if I'm not obedient to the will of God in the present. I can't say on earth as it is in heaven if I'm not prepared to give my life to him on earth as well as in heaven. I can't say my daily bread if I'm not trusting him for my every need. I can't say forgive our debts as we forget debtors if I harbor a grudge against someone. I cannot say do not lead us into temptation if I deliberately place myself in a position to be tempted. I cannot say deliver us from the evil one if I'm not prepared to fight evil in the spiritual realm with the weapon of prayer. So the fourth thing that Jesus teaches us about proper prayer is, and in this text is about forgiveness. We've been learning through the whole Sermon on the Mount that Jesus is teaching us about what life is in this kingdom so we can live like that. The whole scope of his life, death, and resurrection is building on that understanding that he came, died, and rose again in order to atone for our sins, offer us forgiveness, pay our debt for that sin, that we could never ever repay ourselves and have eternal life forever through his resurrection. Notice in this statement, forgive us our trespasses, our debts, or sin as we forgive those who trespass against us. You notice that as, that swing word, it's like, we have to remember that. We have to forgive. You know? Because he's forgiven us. We can't hold grudges. We need to utilize that in the Lord's Prayer. It would behoove us if we prayed that prayer, maybe just stopped right there for a while, you know? 
and maybe took inventory. Do we really do that together? So lastly, Jesus uh, shares about specifics on fasting. He teaches his followers, in addition to his teaching about prayer, he makes the assumption that all his followers fast since they give He gives instructions for when they fast. And he says that again, when you fast, when you fast. It's not teaching much on method of fasting, but on the right motivation again. Fasting, as referred to here by Jesus, is voluntary. It's abstinence. It's it's about sorrow for sin and giving up food for a specific time for religious purposes. And he gets into that. In that day, it was often accompanied by wearing sackcloth, which probably looks pretty disgusting as an outfit, Um, placing ashes on one's head, and not bathing for an extended period of time. And everyone around would see or smell that that person was fasting. They would go, oh my gosh, pew, man, he must be fasting, you know. And Jesus teaches that when we fast, we we shouldn't call attention to it. We should bathe, dress well, compose ourselves as usual. And as with the rest of Jesus' teaching here, he's saying that God must be the sole purpose of our fasting. In our life group again, thank you life group for some fodder in my sermon. One of our brothers said, when I fast, I've taught myself that when my stomach grumbles, I remember that hunger and I just try to focus on my hunger for God. It's like, wow, it's good stuff. John Wesley declares this, first let fasting be done unto the Lord with our eye singly fixed on him. Let our intention herein be this, that in this alone to glorify the Father which is in heaven. Amazing things, my friends, can happen during fast, personally and corporately. We can tune into God's will and know his rhythm and his instruction and deepen our depth for our love for him. Also, we can learn how to exist for the benefit of others in fasting. And churches can experience revival and focus on God's next faithful step in the mission and purpose of that church through corporate fasting. In Isaiah chapter 58, the prophet says these words, It is not not this, the fast, that I choose, but to loosen the bonds of injustice, to undo the, the yoke, to let the oppressed go free. To break every yoke. It is not to share your bread with the hungry. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring homeless poor into your house? And one of the things that Isaiah is emphasizing here, that the point of fasting isn't just to show the the performing of religious duty. The point of fasting is to help us connect not only the hunger with ourselves and our hunger for God, but the hunger of the brokenness of the world. It is broken. Right now, there's 108... 854 million people who are going hungry. And there's 9 million people dying each year from hunger. As you imagine, fasting reminds us of our dependence on God. But it also teaches us to remember those who need God and need the benefits of those things that that we have materially. You know, in Jesus' time, the Israelites fasted on Monday and Thursday to remind them of their dependence upon God. In the early church, Christians began to fast on Wednesday and Friday instead. And then Wednesday helped them prepare to observe the events of the last days, including Monday, Thursday, and Good Friday. 
and they were to remember the great sacrifices that Jesus made in those days. John Wesley encouraged Methodists to continue to practice fasting on Wednesday and Friday. He went so far to say that fasting was just as important as prayer. And those two disciplines ought to be practiced together. And so it's the rhythm of our spiritual practices. You know, I know the leadership of this church has in the past, and I believe they will call in the future, a fast. We can ask God together, and you can do that personally on how you are to do that. So in light of this, what does your prayer and fasting practices look like, or maybe will look like? Jesus knows, our God knows, all we have to do is ask. Does this portion of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount match your practices? And so, beloved, we have to submit to that sincere, humble practice of prayer and fasting with the sole motivation to worship and glorify God. And so, let's practice Jesus' practice.